I know we've got several guests here today. My name's Craig, and um, I'm the preaching guy, senior minister here, and uh, I've been on vacation the last two weeks, so I am super thrilled uh, to see you. Um, I don't know how to adequately help you understand, like, it is so good to get away, uh, but we genuinely miss, this is my wife Audrey on the front row here, we genuinely miss our church family when we're gone. Uh, we do. We, we still tune in oftentimes to the worship experience when we're away. You're just, we're part of this journey together to try to figure out how to follow Jesus how to make this world a better place as we follow him. And, uh, and so as much as the rest is good, I eagerly anticipate coming back. And I was actually talking to God about this this morning, um, kind of let you into my uh, messed up world sometimes, how I operate. Uh, on Sunday mornings, as I'm going through the, the message and, and just, just asking God to infuse it in my heart, I often pray that he would just allow it to marinate there and completely season my heart and me so that it, it helps you um, one of my final steps as I've gone through the message is I export it into a PDF format, which doesn't seem too fancy, uh, and I email it to myself. And in, I don't address the email to me. I address the email to, to God. And so you'd look at my inbox, and you'd see an email uh, most Sunday mornings that says, God, and I just have my prayer there, and I just tell him my heart. And in that prayer this morning was just thanking him for the chance to once again share his truth with you. I'm so thankful for the, the, the people that filled in and in my place while I was gone. Jason did an exceptional job on Graduate Sunday here two weeks ago. And Tom Sears, a good friend and part of our Lebanon Christian Church family, did a great job preaching again last week. But I was just thanking him for that, but saying, God, I can't wait to share uh, with your people today. I'm excited about where we're going. I'm excited about where we've been. I believe that God is doing incredible things in this season in the life of Lebanon Christian Church. If you're just visiting us, us this week because you're here to support family uh, that's been, uh, you know, participating in the family dedication, I just hope that you're encouraged and that you'll go back to wherever you came from and, and you'll have a renewed passion for who God wants you to be. Um, if you're in this place today to support family and you don't know how much God loves you, uh, I hope that you will experience that today. I hope that you'll see that even as we talk about a spiritual discipline like hospitality, which is where we're going that the first and the greatest and the best host in the entire world is the God of the universe who created an amazing place and invited us to be a part of it. And he sent his son so you could be a part of it forever. And so I hope that you know how much you are richly and deeply loved. But before we move into the main part of the message, I feel like we need to connect some dots. Uh, Tom last week teased kind of where we're headed over the next five months as a church with our Sunday morning teaching content. We're going to be focusing on something we call spiritual disciplines, and I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But to help you see where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, uh, I want to use this idea of connecting the dots. How many of you can remember uh, as a child, or maybe even recently if you are a child, doing connect the dot kind of worksheets and puzzles, right? Uh, I learned just a few years ago that there's also adult connect the dots, similar to adult coloring books. Uh, there are adult connect the dots. And I remember looking over someone's shoulder one time and, and just looking at this slew of what probably were a thousand dots with little minuscule numbers that I'm trying to figure out, which set of glasses do I need to read these things, right? And, 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 and they were just making these connections where you go from one dot to the next in a predictable sequence. And what happens when you're done connecting all the dots? There's a beautiful picture, right? There's something there. And the, the more dots, the more elaborate that picture is. And what I want you to see is over the last couple of years, including this year, 
the dots that we've been trying, our leaders, our elders of Lebanon Christian Church have been trying to plot for you because those dots build on what could be described as a complete disciple of Jesus Christ, someone who's living a transformed life. Here's where we started in 2020. In 2020, not knowing what was ahead, we laid out a plan to preach through the entire gospel of Luke. Uh, we have these um, writings at the beginning of our New Testaments, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we call gospels. Um, think of them as theological biographies. They are stories about Jesus that communicate truth from God to us that introduce us to the life-changing, ever-impactful person of Jesus Christ. Uh, they let us into his world. They let us into his mind. They let us hear his teaching, and they change us. They're people after people who will tell the story of just opening up God's word for the first time, turning to one of the gospels, reading about Jesus' life, and they are forever changed. That's what God's word does. And in Luke's gospel, I love because it's written so detailed. Luke was a physician. Uh, he had a great attention to detail. Uh, he decided to disclose to us just some really cool stuff. He actually lays out his agenda in Luke chapter one where he says that he writes these things so that his audience can have certainty about that which they have been taught and that they believe. And so he goes on to share with us the birth narrative, who Jesus is, calling of disciples, uh, Jesus' baptism, his teachings, his healing. And over the course of 2020 through 52 weeks, we got to see firsthand who Jesus is. But seeing who Jesus is, hearing who Jesus is, reading about who Jesus is, is not all there is. Because if you come face to face with God's son in Jesus Christ, who very few people think he was a bad guy. I mean, most people, even those who don't follow him or wouldn't call themselves Christians, say Jesus was a remarkable man. But coming face to face with Jesus forces us into a choice. Will we believe what he says about himself? Will we follow him? Will we decide to, to, to honor him and live for him? Or will we just ignore that and live uh, kind of our own lives however we want? And so after setting the table with Luke in 2020, we said, okay, where do we go from here? And so we started the year with this series called King Jesus. And if you weren't with us, the beauty of a digital age, and if you're encouraged or inspired to, to, to check that out, you can go to our website and you can get caught up. Uh, the beauty of content, we have a podcast that has all those messages on it. But we saw King Jesus, the authority of God in Jesus. And what it looks like to live our lives in, in, in submission to his authority. What does it look like to make him king of our relationships? What does it look like to make him king of our emotions? What does it look like to make him king of our finances? What does it look like to immerse ourselves, completely go in and, and just allow our lives to be taken over by the character and the attitude and the life of Jesus Christ? And then that bridged into our series on relationships. Okay, if we want to make him king of our relationships, how do we love like Jesus? And that led us into our mental health series in the month of May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. And how do we make him king of our emotions and king of the chaos that we experience in this world and, and king of our own, you know, our, our bodies in a fallen world? They struggle, including our minds sometimes. And how do, we, how do we continue to worship him and make him king in the midst of that? And that leaves us this idea then of immersing ourselves in his life. How do we, how do we immerse ourselves? How do we allow our lives to completely be enveloped into the life of Christ? When we look at Jesus... Most people will agree that he, he just expresses the very best, the, the fullest, uh, the, the fullness, the, the best of what humanity is intended to be and how he treats people, how he loves people, how he acts. And so how do we, how do we live like that? Well, the beauty of God's story that's been unfolding and the story he tells us in the pages of scripture is that he gives us a number of what we might call spiritual practices or habits 
behaviors, thought patterns, things that we can cultivate in our lives to help us become more and more the people that Jesus wants us to be. Not to earn his favor, they don't get us any more grace from God, uh, but to experience more and more of the grace that he has already given. Spiritual disciplines are those holy habits. Uh, They help us cultivate a Jesus-centered and a Jesus-permeated life so that we actually look more and more like him. Uh, Maybe a fancier way to say it is that spiritual disciplines help us cultivate Christ-likeness. And I love that image of cultivation because we just came through planting season and you see tractors in fields and they're turning over the soil and they're, they're trying to make sure that soil is in the, the, the best possible condition to grow something. They're adding chemicals, they're fertilizing or putting some sort of barrier chemical down. They're, they're, they're making it the best possible environment. And that's what spiritual disciplines do. They help us cultivate a place where God can really shape us to become all that he intends for us to be. So over the next five months, we're going to spend time in these little mini-series looking at some of these spiritual disciplines. And I say some because there are a variety. One of my favorite books is a book by a woman named Adele Calhoun. It's called The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. And it lists, it's like 40 plus spiritual disciplines that we see in the pages of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, how people throughout history have stayed in tune with who God is and what he wants from them. If you are an overachiever or if you want to take another step in your relationship with Jesus, I'd encourage you to download that, get it on Kindle, get the hard copy from Amazon, wherever your favorite bookstore is, and and get that resource. If you're at home, you can probably bring it up and order it right now. Um, and, and, And you can have that to see what those different spiritual disciplines are. I'm not advocating that someone else's book is more important than scripture. What you'll see in Adele Calhoun's book is that every spiritual discipline is founded on specific places in scripture we see that. She's just helping you kind of systematize and order all the things that are out there about spiritual disciplines. So we're just gonna be scratching the surface. And the first place we're gonna scratch is the discipline of hospitality. Now we live in a world where that term is not foreign to us anymore. We've heard the word hospitality, which we've talked over the last year and a half about a hospitality industry that's been dramatically affected by the pandemic. We typically think of the the hospitality industry, we think about hotels and restaurants and and some of the ride-sharing services and, and conference venues and convention centers and those places that are all put in place to help someone feel welcomed, either for a specific purpose or just being welcomed in general. We're familiar with hospitality, welcoming people in. What I think you'll see over the next four weeks is that the biblical idea of hospitality, the Christian discipline of hospitality, is actually even far more than those things. It includes welcoming people, but there's something even greater there, and that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Jesus is kind of the king uh, of challenging us and helping us see something that's even greater than what we once thought or believed. So let's just start with a question. Let's keep your mind engaged. When was the last time you personally showed hospitality to someone? When was the last time you practiced hospitality? When was the last time you opened up your home, perhaps, to have somebody over? Maybe it was a family member traveling through town. Maybe it was a good friend you hadn't seen in a while. You know, uh, they feel like they're, they feel safe now, so they're coming over for a meal. When was the last time you practiced hospitality? And then maybe you, you invited someone out for coffee and you just wanted to spend time with them. 
Typically, we think of hospitality in terms of meals and homes, but that's not the only way we can do it. Uh, That's a pretty historical way, which we'll see in a few weeks. But sometimes it's just about being open to a conversation. It's about leaving margin in our schedules. When was the last time that someone came to you and they wanted to talk, and instead of rushing off to your next thing or, or, or the next alert that showed up in your phone, you just made yourself available to hear and to listen, to be hospitable. So when was the last time you practiced hospitality? Try to lock that in. Now, who did you practice hospitality toward? Was it a friend? Was it someone you hadn't seen in several months? Was it a family member that you wanted to reconnect with? Was it a family member passing through town? Was it a coworker you hadn't spent time with in several weeks? Who was it that you invited in, that you opened your heart towards and your hands toward? and perhaps even your home toward. I would guess that many of us, the people we've most recently practiced hospitality toward are people that we know well. It's a chance to reconnect with them after months or weeks of not seeing them. How many of us have opened up our homes recently to people we don't know well, that we're not familiar with, that we barely know? And even as I pose that question, some of you, you're like, your skin's crawling. You're like, there's no way I would let somebody in my house that I don't know. But I think what you're gonna see is that what Jesus models for us and what the scriptures mandate for us is that the fullest expression of hospitality as God has designed it, yes, it includes friends. Yes, it includes family. But it includes strangers. I was so challenged by a book that we read as a family. Um, I say that, I should say that loosely. Audrey and I were intentionally reading it together. She was reading it out loud. Our boys, 18 and 17, were in a car with us, trapped for five hours each way. So they read the book with us, um, but not necessarily by their choice. Uh, Last November, uh, we read through this book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. And I'd heard about hospitality. I I believe that to be a good follower of Jesus, I needed to be available to people and open up our home to people. But she challenged me so much as she dives into the word of God and helps us see how, this is not only how Jesus lived, but it's a mandate of followers of Jesus to to be hospitable. She, She talks about radically ordinary hospitality. And the name of the book says it all. It says the gospel comes to the house. If we are men and women who are committed to who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ, we should be men and women who understand that gospel comes with an open door that invites people in or a back deck that invites people over or a front porch that invites people to sit. The gospel comes to the house. And as we were reading this, driving down I-65 towards Nashville on our way to a conference, I just had this image that kind of seared into my mind and it was of someone taking coffee and filling a cup and inviting someone for a conversation. And just the the words came to me, pour the cup. And I just started thinking about how much in the American culture serving someone a drink is one of the first signs of hospitality. Uh, We we were um, a week ago now uh, in, in Maui, Audrey and I, and 
Um, to show you how my ADD brain works really quick, because it's going to bother me if I don't say it. She saw a shirt that said, we're happily Mauied. And uh, every time I say the word Maui, I think about being happily Mauied. So anyway, <laughs> that's out there. Do what you want to with it. Um, so we were, we were vacationing in Maui at this um, couple's getaway. And one of the things I observed even as guests were arriving at the place we were staying, uh, the people greeting them and helping them unload their baggage, they were offering people bottles of water in the, in the heat of the day. Why? Because when you give someone something to drink, when you pour the cup for them, it's a sign of saying, listen, I invite you in. Think about your stays at hotels. Like how often do hotels now have like coffee on serve all day long? You can go and you can pour your own cup. They're probably not gonna pour it for you, uh, but you can get your cup of coffee. How many times when you invite people over into your homes is one of the first things you say to them, can I get you what? Something to drink. We pour the cup of tea, we pour the cup of water, we pour the cup of coffee, whatever that is. Maybe it's little kids, you pour the cup of Kool-Aid, right? But it's a sign of warmth and affection and an invitation to come in and welcome people. And so as we're driving on I-65, I thought, what if our church could be challenged in this spiritual discipline of hospitality? What if we could be challenged to pour the cup? So over the next four weeks, including today, we're gonna look at how we can pour the cup. What do the scriptures say about radical, ordinary hospitality? We're gonna start with just two passages. There are so many we're gonna look at over the coming weeks. But we're gonna start in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Peter chapter four. So whether you have a hard copy or your digital Bible, find Romans 12 first. As you're finding that, here's kind of the backstory of Romans. Romans is a letter that was written by Paul, a great missionary, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus who himself had been transformed by God's mercy and grace. And so Paul writes these believers in Rome that he desperately wants to come to. And he writes this beautiful letter that, that talks in the early sections about God's grace and God's mercy, what sin has done to us and how God's grace and mercy kind of corrects that and restores us. And he just had this beautiful section. Keep in mind that when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, uh, they couldn't open up in their churches and say, find chapter 12. It was just a big, long letter. And so the first two thirds of the letter are all about grace and mercy and why we need it. Uh, you have those famous passages like uh, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, um, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna forget it now. Christ died for us. Help me out, Audrey. How about I just look it up? I have my Bible open. <laughs> See, out of practice for two weeks. Here you go. Yeah, God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter eight, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans chapter eight, verse 28, that, um, that he works all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So he's charting this course of God's mercy and grace and why we need it and what it should do for us. And then he shifts gears in chapter 12, what we call chapter 12, to say, how do we live in response to that? And here's what he says, Romans 12, verses one and two. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So in, in light of everything that I've said, live this way. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So he says, because of all these things about God's mercy, you need to be transformed. You should be changed. 
verses three through eight, he says part of this is God's spirit enables gifting in you and you have spiritual gifts. And in, in verse nine, he starts to just kind of just, just go into details about how if you're transformed, this is what your life should look like. He says, as you're being transformed, as you're transforming, your love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. He's saying, like, these are ongoing qualities that should be present in the life of someone being transformed by this God who's incredibly merciful. And look at what he shares in verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice what? Hospitality. Practice hospitality. So he says, one of the defining characteristics, one of the defining marks of a maturing follower of Jesus is that they practice hospitality. If you thumb over to 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter, who's a disciple of Jesus, even if you are new to, to learning things about Jesus, you probably have heard of Peter before. He's probably most famous uh, for a couple of things that he doesn't want to be famous for, and that's denying Christ three times and losing sight of Jesus as he's walking along the waves and sinking into the sea. Um, but Jesus did some remarkable things, had incredible zeal. Peter did remarkable things, had incredible zeal. And here's what he encourages believers in a difficult season. Verse 7 of First Peter 4. Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. He says, guys, things are going to be hard as we approach the time of Jesus coming back. This should be a, a sense of urgency among you to be alert and of sober mind and pray. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply. Sounds a lot like Paul. Be sincere in love. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. And look at verse 9. Fueled by the urgency of the end is coming near, what do we do? We offer what? Hospitality. And the hard part is we offer hospitality without what? Grumbling. Um, at the risk of stereotyping just a little bit, um, I know this doesn't apply to everybody, but in my experience, speaking from my experience, typically um, the women among us are so much better at offering hospitality with gladness. Um, I, I don't know if you've had this experience, if you're a guy in the room, um, your significant other says, hey, I think we should have so-and-so over. And you're like, yeah, the concept sounds great, but uh, I want time with my kids, or I want time with you, or I was planning on doing this. And I've just seen so many warm and welcoming and hospitable hearts among our women. I think it's a, an evidence of God's grace on you that you just, you'll just let all kinds of people in, and sometimes all kinds of feral animals in. You just, you just will open up and let, let people in. Um, but I know that sometimes, although I like it when people are finally over, there's a little bit of grumbling that goes on in my heart sometimes, depending on who we've invited over. And so I'm so challenged by Peter saying, hey, as a disciple of Jesus, I want you to work on this offering hospitality thing. And oh, by the way, Craig, uh, it's without grumbling um, or muttering things under your breath or kicking the door on the way out when you find people are coming over, like, like let's offer hospitality. So in Romans 12, we are called to practice hospitality. It's a sign of someone being transformed. That's why we need to cultivate this discipline in our lives. In 1 Peter, we see that it's, it's kind of fueled by this sense of urgency. The reality is, is that at a point that we don't know, the king of our universe, Jesus Christ, is going to return. 
And at that time, there will be judgment and there will be redemption. And if I genuinely care about people, I should be offering hospitality because I want them to experience the restoration and the redemption that God brings. But even knowing it's a mark of a transforming disciple and it's fueled uh, by, by, by the sense of urgency, that still doesn't tell me what hospitality is when it speaks of it in Romans and 1 Peter. So for that, we need to go back to that word hospitality. You probably know that you know, we read the Bible in our own language, but Paul didn't write in English. Peter didn't write in English. They, they wrote in something we call Koine Greek. It's a language that we don't speak, but thankfully, because of the beauty of history, there are people that know that language. And so when they translate our Bibles, they read in the original language and they say, okay, what best represents this idea in English? So it's always important to go back and say, what did they say? Because that determines what it means. One of the things we so often get wrong in our culture is we want to start with how we understand things and force that back on Scripture. But if we start with Scripture and say, okay, God, you show me how to think and how to feel and how to act, uh, we're in a much better place. So let's go back to what Paul wrote when he says, practice hospitality in Romans 12. Peter in 1 Peter 4, when he says, offer hospitality. They use a word. Paul uses a little bit nuanced form of the word, but it's built upon the same word Peter uses. The word Paul uses is a word that we would pronounce phylloxenia, which I know is a mouthful. The word that Peter shares is phylloxenos. Phylloxenia comes from phylloxenos. And why I share that with you is not to make you upset or to frustrate you. It's to, I want you to see this word. The word is built upon two words. Philo, which means friend, and exenia, or exenas, that means stranger. So when you put the words together as Paul and Peter use them, they're saying, be a friend of strangers. Offer friendship to strangers. What does it mean to be hospitable? What does it mean to practice the discipline of hospitality? We offer friendship to strangers. Yes, it includes offering friendship and showing warmth and kindness to our family and our friends and people that we know. But the fullest form, what we see in Jesus is that we also offer to people that we're unfamiliar with. Now, if you're like me, you initially get that understanding. You're like, mm, I've been taught since I was a kid, stranger what? Danger, right? Stranger, danger. We don't get into the cars with strangers. We don't talk to strangers. And we don't accept candy from two people. Strangers and clowns, right? We, we, we were taught that from the time we were kids. Like, you don't mess with strangers. Strangers are bad people. You don't mess with strangers. And so when we, in our 21st century understanding, hear the word stranger, we're like, friendship to strangers? Oh, no. I was taught not to do that. But if we start with what Paul and Peter and the rest of our inspired writers were saying, it is universal from the beginning of Scripture, Genesis, with Abraham, of all people, all the way to the end when God welcomes us into the new world he's restoring. The concept of a stranger is simply speaking not of goodness or badness, but of someone who is unfamiliar to you, someone who is not born into the community or family that you are a part of. And what we'll see in a couple of weeks is that God holds this so carefully before his people because Israel, as they come into the promised land, were strangers. It wasn't the land that they were born into. 
And they came into this land and they cultivated the land and God established his people. He welcomed them. They were strangers. And he tells them again and again, Leviticus 19 is a great place. He talks about welcoming the stranger. In fact, it's part of what Jesus goes back to in the, the talk about the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbors, yourself. That's pulled from that passage in Leviticus where just before that, he says to welcome the stranger, people that are unfamiliar to you. So when we talk about this biblical idea, this radically ordinary hospitality, it means to offer that warmth to open up our hearts, our hands, and our homes. Yes, to friends and family, but that's just the beginning. The beauty of a transformed life then opens itself up to people that they're, they don't know well. Now, in the world of Paul and Peter, that would mean, first and foremost, other followers of Jesus. How could the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus, move throughout the Roman world unless as people traveled and they shared, others were welcoming them into their homes to feed them, provide for them, shelter them? When, when the culture's antagonistic towards Christianity, when, when it's difficult to do that, how else do you get there unless people invite you in and they care for you? And how else do people come to know who Jesus is unless they're invited to come sit across the table and share a meal? You remember that picture from Acts chapter uh, four of the early, early church where it tells us they met together in each other's homes? I can imagine you know, this man inviting his friend and as they sit across the table, he sees something different and that's how the gospel is shared. Why? Because of hospitality, friendship to strangers. And the words we see in Romans 12 and in 1 Peter 4, they're not, they're not mentioned in, in, in a tense of speech that we would consider a suggestion. Well, you know, if you feel like it, make an extra casserole, have some people over. No, it's a, it's a biblical command. You practice hospitality. You offer hospitality. What would happen if we were people who offered friendship, the same friendship we would offer to someone we know to people that we don't know? Uh, I was reading in this uh, theological workbook that I don't think you probably have on your Kindle. Um, the, the historians and stuff, as they research and they learn about the, the world of the Bible, particularly the first century world that we're talking about today, they'll, they'll share the things they've learned by studying other resources. And here's this beautiful writing, I think, about hospitality. In the Lexham Theological Workbook, it says this, hospitality consists of the welcome and care of guests, especially those who are travelers and strangers to the family or community. In biblical use, hospitality serves multiple functions, including relief for the poor or dispossessed, the strengthening of bonds of affection, inclusion of the outsider, and especially in the New Testament, the propagation of the Christian message. Like it was fundamental to bringing the kingdom of God to others to open up your homes to people, even those that you didn't know well. What would happen in our world if we were more willing to open up our homes? The, the neighbor that can't figure out how to mow his yard only, but keeps cutting into your yard and destroying your grass. What, what if instead of just talking about them, you invited them over for a meal? That that person that used to be so close to and then 2020 happened and they felt differently about masks and vaccines and the president than you did and, and now you're at war because you posted a bunch of crap you regret on Facebook. 
What if instead of doing that, you invited them to sit at the table with you and you heard their opposing opinions and you invited them into your home? What I love about Rosaria Butterfield's story, and I'm not gonna share her story. I'm gonna let you read it for yourself. You can look her up. She was so opposed to Christians. She felt like every follower of Jesus was after her. They hated her because of some choices she was making in her life and some ways she was living. And it's because a husband and a wife said, you know what, why don't you come over for dinner? And one meal turned into multiple meals over multiple weeks, over multiple months. And the process of receiving radically ordinary hospitality, her life was changed and she met Jesus for the very first time and completely transformed her life. And now she is devoted to helping followers of Jesus practice the same hospitality she herself received. Here's how she writes about that on page 31 of her book. She says, radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. It brings glory to God, serves others, and lives out the gospel in word and deed. That's a picture of what Paul and Peter are advocating and God is commanding through them. How many of you have ever stayed at an Airbnb? <clears throat> Anybody? Um, so, so Airbnb, you probably know, I mean, it's a, basically a network of people that are willing to let you stay in their home, maybe just a room, maybe you have your whole house, a whole condo, a whole apartment. And so you basically book it like you would a hotel, you pay fees and, and you get to stay there. That's a form of hospitality. You're letting people come into your home. And so people all over the world offer up parts of their houses or their whole apartments, homes, condos. What if the church knew a different type of Airbnb? Instead of Airbnb, A-I-R-B-N-B, we live by a motto of Airbnb, H-E-I-R. Because the scriptures tell us that we are heirs. Ephesians 4 tells us that we have received an inheritance. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. We are heirs of the king of the universe. We, are, we, we receive what he has to offer us. And what if we lived with open hearts and open hands that led to open homes that we would say, listen, I am just an heir. I'm just receiving what King Jesus has given me. So I want to open up my heart and my hands and my home to other people that they might come to know. Just even on a practical surface, imagine if followers of Jesus found a way to network together all across the world and offer up their homes for other followers of Jesus to come stay with them. That would save you on some vacation costs if you had that type of Airbnb. But imagine what would happen even more than that if we opened up our homes to people that we didn't yet know well so they could see the witness of God in our lives and we could build true relationships as people feel warmth and welcome from us. They would come to know about the King we love and serve. There's a, a graphic that I, I developed this week. I just was thinking through everything I was learning. And I just call it the circle of hospitality. When you have an open heart, meaning, meaning you are a person who has been changed by your encounter with Jesus, it's open to what he wants to do with you, changing your motivations, your priorities, how you live, your choices. That will inevitably result in open hands. He will change how you live. You will do things differently than you did before. It may take time. Uh, you may have some relapses, but he will change how you live. You'll go from an open heart to open hands. And inevitably, that should lead to open homes. That we welcome people 
Friend and family, yes, but also stranger, people we don't know well. People that maybe we just met in the aisle at Aldi or on the parking lot on a Sunday morning or mowing the yard next door to us. And you know what happens as open hearts lead to open hands that lead to open homes? People encounter Jesus and their hearts are opened, which lead to open hands and open homes, which guess what? Lead to more open what? Hearts and hands and homes. And strangely enough, that looks a lot like the Great Commission, doesn't it? That we would go into all the world and we would make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them, helping them obey everything that God has given us. And they'll be disciples to do the very same thing. The gospel comes with a house key. May we be people who grow to offer that radically ordinary hospitality. Um, a week and a half, two weeks ago, I guess it is now, we were arriving in Maui and I, I had heard um, about Hawaii and the Aloha spirit. I'd never experienced it. I, I know I think it's on their license plate. And I didn't really know what Aloha meant. I thought Aloha was probably just, hey, how are you in Hawaiian? But as beautiful as Maui was, and this is a picture from um, our room, uh, just gorgeous. You know what was more beautiful than Maui? The people. When they talk about the Aloha spirit, there is a genuine warmth and welcome among the Hawaiian people. And you may say, well, Craig, listen, if you were staying at a hotel or a resort, of course they're going to welcome you. You're paying them money. But I'm telling you, it went way beyond that. The taxi driver bringing us from the airport to our hotel, they, they didn't have to share details of their life. They didn't have to welcome, let us know how glad they were that we were there. The taxi driver took us from our hotel back to the airport. They didn't have to do that. The person mowing the grass alongside this, this road that we would walk 15 minutes one way and 15 minutes the next way, we would talk to them about their landscaping, tell them what a good job they were doing. They didn't have to tell us that they were glad we were there and inquire of our lives. The person waiting our tables didn't have to <clears throat> not only share her story with us, but allow us to share our story with her. And then the second time we saw her to give us some of her own personal art that she had designed herself, she didn't have to do that. And the Hawaiians would tell you that as we experience this, it's all about the aloha spirit. It's this, not just a hi and hello, but we are glad you're here. We want to receive you. We want to welcome you. We want you to be well. And what dawned on Audrey and I is that the mainland of the United States is one of the few places in the world where we simply say hi to people. Many places in the world, they have a greeting that means, I'm glad you're here. I want things to go really well with you. Aloha has much more in common with the Hebrews' shalom, peace and wholeness I want for you. Or when we travel with our mission partner, TCM, we take a trip to Austria, they teach you to say to people this phrase, they say, tell them, Gruß Gott, which is German for, I want things to go great with you, God's blessing on you. Isn't that so much more full than just, hi, But what do we so often do? Hey, what's up? Well, what if we lived with that aloha and we were like, you know what? I don't want to wish you a good morning and a good day, but I hope that life goes really well for you. And oh, by the way, I want to be a part of making it good for you. What would happen in the church if we lived that way? It would change the world. So let's be a people that pour the cup and live with radical, ordinary hospitality. God, I thank you for the chance to share with your people this morning. 
God, I thank you for just being so clear in your word about what matters to your heart and transforming us by the power of your spirit, enabling us to be people who, even we don't feel like we have much, even we don't feel like our, our home is much, that we can open the doors and invite people in. And as we build relationships over food and coffee and tea and water, how lives are opened up and stories are forever changed. Lord, help us practice hospitality your way. And it's in your name we pray and trust. In the name of Jesus, amen.